0: Well, this evening we're here on behalf of Two Ways Ministries, and the vision of Two Ways Ministries is to evangelise by teaching the Bible, and in particular, to raise up a network of Christians who live single-mindedly and witness boldly for Christ, Uh, now which sounds wonderful, and uh, wouldn't we all want to see more of that? But of course, the climate in which we live now is increasingly difficult living single-mindedly for Christ and witnessing boldly for Christ just doesn't seem to be getting any easier. In fact, many people are observing that with the changes we're seeing in our society, evangelism is becoming more difficult, especially among some groups. But rather than take my word for it, we asked a good friend who could not be... It's sort of like the Oscars. Al Stewart couldn't be here tonight, but he uh, he did send himself... Uh, make himself present via video. And Al has a message for us, Al Stewart, one of our best evangelists, a very experienced evangelist over 30 years, about why he thinks things are getting tougher and how they're getting tougher. Let's hear what Al has to say.
1: Hi there, my name's Al Stewart. I work with City Bible Forum uh, here in Sydney. Well, actually we work all around the country and we talk with um, suits about Jesus. I wanted to talk with you briefly about uh, evangelism and climate change. Uh, In the 30 or so years since I finished Bible College, I think we've seen um, gospel climate change. Uh, There's been all sorts of factors that have contributed. Uh, Recently, for example, the Royal Commission into Child Abuse has really uh, affected the way so many people see, Christian churches and organisations. Uh, There's the whole LGBTI rainbow agenda, and uh, well, you can see what's just happened about the uh, the postal vote on um, same-sex marriage. Uh, There's been uh, a huge amount of uh, immigration from people uh, who bring non-Christian religions with them, etc. What I mean by climate change is we've gone from uh, the Christian message, kind of in the broader climate of the media and the elites and those who are the thought. Uh, influences from the Christian message being kind of harmlessly irrelevant uh, to us now being seen in many quarters as evil. Uh, we're the we're the haters. Uh, we're the bigots. Why? Because well, love wins, and we're against against love. And so that's changed. Now another way of saying it is the ground has got harder. So what we've found is you you need to actually now in the big picture we need to be more creative and think harder about how to win the right to engage people with the Bible, how to actually get people to uh, engage with the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is, of course, relevant, but how to show people that, and you need to start further back because uh, there is an astounding level of biblical ignorance out there. And in terms of so many of the good things in our society, well, we have the memory of a goldfish in terms of where all of that has come from, from our Judeo Christian heritage. So you need to work harder to get people to engage with the Bible. Now, once people do engage with the Bible, whether that be in a large group and preaching or one to one, you still get that same huge traction as God's at work in people's lives. Uh, so, what do we need for our gospel workers in the next generation? We need resilience. The climate's changed, the ground has got harder, we need people with resilience, people who are creative, people who will keep going. And what gives that resilience? Well, it's theological conviction. Real theological conviction to understand what we believe and why and have faith in a sovereign God and his word and prayer. And if you want someone who will build or develop theological uh, conviction, resilience into gospel workers, uh, Philip Jensen's the man. Um, philip started to teach me a thing or two about that about 35 years ago i'm i'm still trying to learn it so i would uh, wholeheartedly recommend the ministry of two ways ministries uh, and the influence that philip will have now uh, on future generations of gospel workers
0: do you uh, do you feel that hardness that al is talking about that increased sense of difficulty that climate change i certainly do in my own experience in in our family community uh, where I go to church uh, and across Sydney. He makes a very good point, doesn't he? And what we're gathered here together tonight to do is is really two things. There's a a twofold agenda tonight. The first is to address this question and to listen to that guy that Al mentioned who's been thinking about this and stirring people up to witness and live single-mindedly for Christ for a long time. Listen to Philip uh, Jensen talk from the Bible about the climate change and how we can understand it and how we can live and witness within it. So the first uh, part of our agenda tonight will be to understand our situation more clearly um, and to be encouraged and enthused uh, to live and witness for Christ. But there's a second part of the agenda as well, and that's, of course, to raise support for that ministry, for the ministry that Philip and the Two Ways Ministries team, the expanding team of Two Ways Ministries, is doing. Uh, We're going to be asking you to become prayer partners and financial partners in the work of Two Ways Ministries, just so there's no illusions later on or no surprises. That's part of why you're here, and I assume you know that's part of why you're here, is to be asked to become a partner and to help out with this ministry, and we'll get to that later on. So if that's going to be our agenda, we'll do a few things. We'll open the Bible shortly and start looking at it, and Philip will open the Bible. And tonight, two talks for the price of one. I know it's it's hard to believe that Philip could give a short talk, but he has guaranteed me the first talk is a short talk and the second one is a slightly longer talk. Um, We'll pray in response to what we hear from the Bible. We'll hear about the ministry of Two Ways Ministries and meet some of the expanding team of people who are involved, uh, the family of people there in Two Ways Ministries, and we'll hear about the vision and plans for next year. So that's the plan for the evening. Um, We're going to get through it on time. I'm going to make sure of that, Um, and I think you're going to find it a very rewarding and encouraging night. Let's open by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you are a sovereign God whose gospel is powerful. And we thank you that even though the soil is sometimes hard and we're experiencing that at present in our culture in some ways, we, we know, Father, that you are a sovereign God who not only spreads your word but prepares the soil and softens it. And we pray, Father, that you would soften our hearts tonight as we listen to your word, that you would teach us from your word about ourselves and about our generation and about the gospel and that you would encourage and enthuse us, Father, to take that gospel to your world. Uh, We pray you be with us, be with Philip as he speaks, be with all of us as we listen and interact, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip, the challenge is over to you.
2: Oh, good evening, friends. Uh, Apart from the embarrassing end part of Al's commendation... What he's saying is really important about climate change, isn't he? I saw this morning uh, an article about Tim Farron, who is a British politician. He was the leader of the Liberal Democratic uh, Party at the last election, Uh, an evangelical Christian who actually has resigned at the end of it because he has come to the conclusion you can't really be a Christian and a politician in Britain today. And he says this, If you actively hold a faith that is more than an expression of cultural identity, you're deemed to be far worse than eccentric. You are dangerous. You are offensive. That is an extraordinary culture change in any society, but in the British society in particular, remembering the Queen is still the head of the church in Britain. So I've got a question for you. And I want you to share it with the uh, person beside you, and in a few moments' Tom, I'm going to stop all the chatter and get some of you to call out the answer to uh, all of us. Uh, you don't call out your own answer; you call out the answer of the person beside you. Unless your answer is better than theirs, then you call out your own answer. That is, why is evangelism so difficult in 21st century Sydney? Why do you think it is? Al's raised some things. Why do you think it's so difficult now? Well, it doesn't sound like there's any shortage of ideas, so how about you suggest some of the ideas that are there? Why, why is evangelism so difficult in Sydney today? Just quick, smart answers. Just call them out. God seems irrelevant. God seems
3: irrelevant.
2: I can't hear what you're saying. We're, soft. We're soft. We soft. We soft. We are soft. Yes, thank you, Rebecca. Yes. Yes? You've got to say? No? <laughs> um, life is too good. Uh, there's no
4: persecution.
2: They're enjoying the life of material. Yep, life is too good. No persecution. No, but just too good in Australia, yes? There's no such thing as absolute truth. No such thing as absolute truth. We're relativists, yes? Uh, we live increasingly in an unchurched world. Yeah, we live in a very unchurched world, Yes? We are seen as the bad guys, aren't we now? Yes? People have preconceived ideas. Yes, the preconceived ideas about Christianity. Yes, they think they know what Christianity is about, so they don't even ask and inquire because they think they know. Yeah? I know they want to and I what, yes, we just want short, smart answers, which is what the politicians try and give, only they just give short answers. <laughs> yes? Soundbite, that's a soundbite thinking generation. Uh, easily We're easily offended. Sorry if you're a politician. Yeah. Uh, the fear, of not knowing everything. fear of not knowing anything. That's the Christian's fear of not knowing everything. Yes? I never had that fear. <laughs> uh, all, the isms, all the isms that are running around. Yes? Our leaders are not Christian. Our leaders are not Christian. Yeah? People are just too busy. Okay. I want us to turn to Jesus and his analysis of belief and unbelief by us reading from Mark chapter 10. And uh, Susan's going to come up here and read for us Mark chapter 10, verses 17
4: to 31. Hi, everyone. My name is Susan Dock. I'm heading into third year next year at college, and um, I'll also be a student minister with Two Ways Ministries. Why don't we read Mark together, starting at verse 17 of chapter 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first.
2: Thanks, Susan. It's a well-known passage, isn't it? And I'm only going to draw a few kind of quick points together. It's not a detailed study tonight, because as you heard from Tony, I'm allowed only to speak quickly this time. Shortly, not just quickly. Uh, If I speak quick enough, it'll be shorter. But let me draw out a few key observations under the heading of the land of the rich young rulers. For this passage gives rise to a remarkable sermon actually because it's all about a remarkable man, a remarkable question, a remarkable answer, a remarkable challenge and if you're a preacher there's a 4.7 for you that I've given you the outline of already that I pinched from somebody else. He was a remarkable man because he was, uh, if you put the three Gospels together, rich and he was young and he was a ruler. But he's remarkable for more than that. He's remarkable because of his honesty, for his intelligence, for his naivety, for his morality, for his sincerity. For his, 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 Jesus looked at him and loved him. He was a remarkable question that he asked. For though he was a moral, upright Jew... He knew that he didn't inherit the kingdom of heaven, that he wasn't in the kingdom of God, that he didn't possess eternal life. And it was a remarkable answer that Jesus gave which pinpoints the problem so precisely. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. We are struck by the idea of sell everything and give it away but we miss sometimes the last bit of it and follow me. There's an apparent arrogance about jesus to demand such total commitment such a level of commitment to him above everything that you own it's a remarkable challenge because it's not only to him but it's to all that he gives this for he goes on to generalize this challenge that's given to the man the passage comes in the context of the suffering servant the end of chapter 8 Mark's Gospel, you'll find that Jesus' disciples have identified that he is the Messiah, and Jesus accepts the identification and begins to teach them what it means to be the Messiah, that is, to suffer and to be crucified. And he goes on to say, if anyone, not just one, but if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For Now listen carefully to how it goes on, for... Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. See, what Jesus is asking of this particular rich young ruler is what he is asking of all and any, really, to lose your life for his sake and the gospel's. Then occurs a series of events in chapters 9 and 10 uh, where you see repeatedly This teaching of Jesus being illustrated. The acceptance of the little children comes just immediately before this. And then the healing of blind Bartimaeus, the beggar, at the end of the chapter. But with the rich young ruler, we also have contrasted the disciples who are arguing over which one of them will be the greatest in the kingdom. So you get... Sandwiched between the little children of no consequence and the blind beggar, these are the ones who are of the kingdom of God, you get the rich young ruler and the disciples who want to be rulers in the kingdom of God. This episode goes beyond this one rich man, for we read here Jesus' analysis of unbelief and belief. Look first, At Jesus' analysis of unbelief, you see it in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Very famous phrase, and it doesn't refer to some hole in a wall called the needle where camels could get through if they hadn't had a drink lately. Uh, I don't know where that archaeological mythology has come from but it's in every second children's book. It's got nothing to do with it. He's saying it's easier to pick your teeth with a telegraph post than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's impossible is what is being said and the disciples certainly understood that. Here is one of the clearest statements of the reason for unbelief. The impossibility of the wealthy entering the kingdom of God. Here is one of the chief reasons why gospel preaching is so difficult in Sydney today. For we are the land of the rich young rulers. That's who we are. Around the world, in poor and difficult countries, in South America, Africa, In parts of Asia, like India and China, we're hearing of great numbers turning to Christ. There are more Christians than ever in the world today. But in the wealthy countries of the Western world, there is a spiritual dearth that has come upon us as people from one nation after another turn away from the lordship of Jesus with no apparent sign of turning back. But in this passage, we not only hear that analysis of unbelief. Wealth rots you spiritually, makes it impossible for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. You also have the analysis, Jesus' analysis, of belief. For in verse 26, he goes on, and they were exceedingly astonished, and he said to them, "Then, sorry, and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. It may be impossible for the rich. It may be impossible for man, but it's not impossible for God. For all things are possible with God. My brothers and sisters, evangelism is fundamentally a spiritual battle. That is what it involves and never more so than when you're trying to evangelise the rich. It's a spiritual battle which is why in a moment we're going to pray because it's only if God does his work of the impossible that we have any chance of seeing our fellow citizens coming into the kingdom of heaven. But before we pray, do notice Peter's response and Jesus' promise. For Peter began to say, well, we've left everything to follow you. But that was what was required of them. Remember, their hearts hadn't actually left everything to follow him. They were going to quarrel about greatness in the kingdom of heaven, which shows their hearts hadn't actually understood the message yet. It's more than simply changing your life. You see, you can leave everything and follow Jesus and not follow Jesus. That's quite possible, isn't it? It's the change of heart within that is seen in the behaviour. But look at Jesus' promise. He says, you will receive back in this lifetime a hundredfold of what you have left. And so many of us can testify time and time again the riches that are beyond our expectation that are ours in Christ Jesus that really God is not mean, he's not beggarly, he provides for us richly in all manner of ways that we never could have expected. It may not have been in the dollars and cents terms, but it is in the friendships and the values, it is within the families and the homes. It's not just money. We live for Jesus now, we receive in this lifetime blessings beyond counting. And, in the life to come, eternal life. But you'll also notice his quote there in verse, as we quote it there in verse 30. Sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions. With persecutions. For the reversal of this world's value systems is never appreciated by this world. And you must expect that while the first is last and the last is first... Those who would like to be first will hate you and despise you and persecute you and ridicule you. As the Apostle wrote to his uh, protege Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So as a community, you and I, as a family, you and I as a family of Two Ways Ministries, we want to evangelise this city and from this city, this land, and from this land, this world. We want to evangelise, therefore, a city full of rich young rulers. That's our mission field. We're not out where it's going to be easy. We're out where it is going to be impossible. That's what we're told by our Lord. It's not going to work. You need to understand that before you start. If you're in a land full of rich young rulers, you're not going to have evangelistic success unless... God does the impossible, which is right up his alley, actually. (laughs) He is the God who can do the impossible. And therefore, the first thing we must do is come in prayer. Plead for his mercy and his kindness. Tim's going to come and lead us in prayer now, and then we'll be back to Tony.
5: Hello, I'm Tim Thumbaraja. I've spent this year as a student minister at Two Ways Ministry and next year I'm going into parish ministry up at Asquith. Uh, We're going to spend some time in prayer now, uh, so please join with me. Lord, with you all things are possible. You spoke and the world existed and you speak to us now by your word of how you work in it, saving your people throughout all of history. We come to you in prayer as children you have saved, with thankfulness that you have overcome what we could not and have turned our hearts from worldly riches to your glorious and eternal kingdom. Father, according to the riches of your glory, strengthen us with power through your spirit, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may not be obsessed with money we have or could have, but instead live single-mindedly for Christ. Help us to know the dangers of our wealth and free us from them by making us eager to give away what we do not need to live simple and godly lives focused on Christ. We also pray for ourselves in the great task you have given us of sharing your word. Help us to appreciate the weight of our role as we share words of power and life. As we are hated for our task and suffer for it, comfort us in the knowledge we have of how Christ was received by the world and what he achieved by dying on the cross. Keep us ever prayerful in our attempts as we rely on you to do the impossible. And so we ask that you take our plans and our efforts today as we consider ministry to the nowhere generation and use them for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Uh, Tim, before you jump down, I'm going to ask this question to quite a few people tonight. Are you a rich young ruler? Tell us us how you would qualify as a rich young ruler.
5: I don't like to admit it, but I suppose I have to say yes. Yes, I am. Um, Growing up, I lived in a very privileged situation. My family was wealthy uh, and I lived in a culture uh, that said, to succeed in life, you have to be rich and uh, influential. So I I lived on the North Shore. I uh, also lived in the Hills District for some time. I uh, went to Sydney Grammar. Um, that tells you probably all you need to know. There you go. Um, <laughs> Trifecta. Okay. But, yeah, by God's grace, I understand uh, the gospel and realise that's not the case. God did the impossible. He did. Thanks, Tim. Um, we're going to hear about now...
0: The two kinds of ministries that Two Ways Ministries is engaged in. Essentially, Two Ways Ministries uh, works with 18 to 30 year olds, with rich young rulers, the rich young rulers of our city, to teach them the Bible, to encourage them to be single-minded for Christ. And it also works with a team of student ministers here at Moore College, of which you've already met a couple. And so we're going to meet now, just over the next few minutes, part of that family. First of all, a couple of. Uh, people who Two Ways uh, ways Ministries is ministering to through their forums and trajectory weekends. We're going to meet Andrew Barrich and Christy Park. Andrew and Christy, would you like to come forward? Where are you? Come on out. Andrew, let's uh, come up here. Let's start with you. Um, Same question. What qualifies you for rich young rulerhood? I feel taller already. That's right. I guess
6: I was in a bit of a similar situation to Tim. Um, so I'm from Sydney, which Philip tells me that classifies me as a rich young ruler. But if that wasn't enough, I also went to the King School in North Parramatta. Um,
0: take that Sydney grammar, that's right. Yeah, take that Sydney grammar. Uh, and, uh,
6: and, and yeah, and both, I also came from a wealthy family. And, um, and yeah, I live in a privileged situation in Sydney.
0: Now, um, you go along to the forums. Tell us a little bit what these forums are that you go to Thursday and Friday nights. Right.
6: Yeah, so I go to the forums on Thursday, and they're exactly the same on Fridays. Uh, it's two hours uh, in the evening where we can learn about Jesus and how to tell uh, rich young rulers around Sydney about Jesus in an effective way.
0: And, and what have you got out of those yourself? Like, what's been the value to you?
6: Yeah, so this, uh, this year we've been going through the Psalms. And we've gone through uh, a bunch of psalms over the year and it's been really awesome uh, hearing Philip and a bunch of the student ministers at Two Ways Ministries teach about those psalms and how they relate to my life and how psalms aren't just, you know, songs but can actually be used as as Bible teaching that I can actually take into my life as well.
0: Cool, cool, cool. Christy, let's hear from you about the forums. Uh, You go to the forums as well. I've got to ask you a question first. Rich Young Ruler S., Or is it, it I don't know. Just a ruler. Rich young ruler. How are you a rich young ruler?
7: Um, well, I was born in Japan, and um, I went to an international school there, and I received great education. Um, I studied international Baccalaureate bachelor- bachelor- the IB, for sure, <laughs> which is, in my opinion, a far better curriculum than the HSE. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to be controversial. <laughs> it made me um, a more critical thinker, and, and it opened up many opportunities for me, and um, I received great education here, I think, in and, yeah, um, because of all the pro- privileges um, that were given to me um, that I was blessed by, therefore, definitely, in that sense, I'm a rich Young ruler. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But God's done the impossible with you as well, and you come along to uh, the forums as well. What do yes. you get out of these forums that you, you come along to to hear the Bible?
7: Um, it's I really enjoyed um, going to the, the Friday forums, um, a stay that I normally go to, um, just looking at the two ways to live, tract, um, and honing in on each box um, over every two weeks, and um, just looking at, for example, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means um, in terms of how uh, we live um, single-mindedly and boldly um, and to if, um, just really um, to open up to the people, so th- other people, so that they can be able to hear about that as well.
0: Yeah, tremendous. Now, listen, the other thing I know you've been to um, are one of these trajectory weekends. I find that a hard word to say, Trajectory. But um, it's a gathering of around 30 or so. Go away for a weekend. This happens five or six times in the year. Um, what happens at these
7: weekends? Um, we just will come in here, Philip speak from the Bible, and um, just really um, engaging the Bible um, at a deeper and a challenging level, and and coming away with how we can apply that um, in our daily lives. Yeah.
0: Tremendous. And Andrew, you go. You've been to Trajectory Weekend as well.
6: Yeah, actually, that's where I met Christy. Oh, we right. went to the same Trajectory Weekend. Uh, yeah, I have been.
0: Tell us, tell us, how's it? How has it helped you? <laughs> uh,
6: trajectory was fun. It was uh,
0: really good getting to
6: know uh, 20 or 30 odd people uh, from them, and spending a lot of time just getting to know them and getting to know them. As brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we're in one united family. And just spending that time away together was so beneficial and so definitely worth it.
0: Would you have known many of that 20 or 30 before you went away? I knew like two. Two, okay. And yeah. so you're from lots of different churches around Sydney? Yeah. All around all Sydney? All 18 to 30 or thereabouts? Something like that. Something like that. There was Philip. But... And plus Philip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Oh, nice. I like the way you work. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Christy. Thank you so much. Uh, The trajectory weekends are really having an incredible impact on the lives of the, you know, 30 people, five or six times a year. Um, The network is building of people who know each other and are encouraging each other and sitting under the teaching of the Bible uh, to become enthused about living for Christ in this difficult climate we live in. So that's the kind of uh, ministry that goes out to people in that age group and gathering a network and building them. The other main ministry that Two Ways Ministries does is here at Moore College where um, Two Ways pays for a, a bunch of student ministers and then trains them. Now, here's the team for 2017. Do we, is this right, is there a picture of the 2017 team? No, there's not a picture of the 2017 team, but you've already met two of them. That was Susan and Tim earlier on. Um, but we do have a picture of the 20, oh no, the 2018 team, that's them. And one of them there, Peter Blair, we're going to meet. Peter, come on out. We're gonna meet the others in just a moment. Peter, how Peter. hello, come on. Out. Quickly, tell us who you are. What were you doing before college?
8: Uh, My name is Peter. I'm married to Jodie. Before college, I worked at a church in Belfast, Northern Ireland, uh, called All Saints. Uh, It's right beside the university.
0: Tremendous. And can you say the word faith for us, please? Faith. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Um, and now you're in. Uh, you're second in, year. Second year here at college. Yeah. And you're part of the student ministry team. What, what do you do? What does student ministry training look like with two uh, ways?
8: Well, alongside helping out at the Thursday or Friday forums and going on the trajectory weekends, and it's hard to say, Yeah. Um, we have Friday training with Philip every week. Um, we spend two hours or so uh, around the table with Philip. Um, as well as doing some student training in two ways to live. So gathering together students at college, uh, taking them through two ways to live and impressing on them the importance um, of really having that nailed down.
0: Okay, so your team is helping to train other people at college in two ways to live? Yeah. What a novel idea, how fantastic. And so what, do you go out and do the walk-up type stuff that happens with two ways to live?
8: So what happened was we gathered um, a group of about... Uh, I think there's about 40 students a week uh, for six weeks, talking through each box, uh, helping them memorise it, think through the logic of it all, and then after that we went and did walk-up evangelism to try and put that stuff into practice.
0: That's fantastic. It certainly that wasn't happening at college when I was at college, and it's that's tremendous mm-hmm. that people are going out. You're doing walk-up around the streets here. That's fantastic. So just summarising, what would you say? What sort of? I hate, I hate to use the language of value add. But what is Two Ways Ministries? What's the value add for you in doing this training with Philip in Two Ways? What's what's it helping you with, and how's it? What's oh, it adding?
8: Well, the Friday training, um, it's it's really really varied. So I remember one week we spent most of the most of the day talking about seating arrangements, <laughs> and how important seating arrangement is for the gap. <laughs> Philip looks very cross. Uh, <laughs> how important this the arrangement of seating is uh, for a meeting, and how how it can make things more conducive for learning and interaction. The next week, we talked about Hebrew exegesis, um, <laughs> how to trace um, a theme through the different sections of the Old Testament, and we spent two hours in Deuteronomy. Um, so it really is every single aspect of ministry you could possibly think of. Uh, Philip covers, and Philip's already thought about it because he's so old. Um, LAUGHTER So it it has been such a privilege uh, to spend that time with Philip, with the team this year, and I'm over the moon that I get to do it next year as well.
0: Yeah, terrific. So you're part of the team for 2018. So two ways ministries uh, work with the student ministry in particular is having a real impact uh, here at Moore College. Um, That's eight or so people every year uh, working closely with Philip Um, not only being trained by him but then having an impact on the other college students especially through that two ways to live training. I was talking to Jane Tua who's on the faculty here at college um, and has her finger on the pulse of things generally does Jane Um, and she was telling me what I've also observed that the temperature is just changing at at Moore College over the past three to five years. Evangelism is more on the agenda, there's more of a buzz around gospel ministry Um, and the, the idea that um, a good bunch of people are going out twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 o'clock every week to share the gospel at, in, uh, in Sydney University or in the streets of Newtown uh, is a great thing. So um, in some imperceptible way, perhaps it's through training eight people every year, um, Two Ways Ministries really is having uh, an impact here on More College. And I think you can see from the, the range of different people we just met, uh, there's going to be enormous impact for the gospel um, in Sydney and beyond as, as these people graduate from Moore College and uh, go forth. So those are the two sort of sides of what Two Ways Ministries does. Um, The work to the uh, younger people at Trajectory and Forum Weekends and the work here at Moore College with the student ministers. And of course all that um, costs money to support and organise and, and to run. We'll tell you more about that in a little while. But I think it's time we had a little break. We need to stand and we need to also sing and say that we want to live for the kingdom, not just these student ministers and these other rich young rulers. We want to live for the kingdom as well. Let's stand and declare that to each other in this great song. 1881, which doesn't make me really a rich young ruler anymore either, does it? Um, one of the astonishing things that happened in the church services there is that there would be a break in the middle of the church service. I'd never heard of such a thing, that you might just have a break. So just for old time's sake, we're just going to have a little break, time for you just to just to kind of stretch and talk to the person next to you. And while you're having this little two-minute break before Philip speaks to us, you might just want to draw, get your uh, eyes onto the comment card, the response card... Uh, that we'll all be filling in together later on. Just familiarise yourself with it. You might even want to start filling it in while you're having a little break now. And Philip will be speaking in just a minute or so.
2: Right, my friends, are we ready to start again, shall we? (laughs) Jesus' analysis of unbelief (laughs) is what I'm going to talk about in a moment when we've got ourselves calm and quiet and back again. The aim of building a network is manifestly working as you gather with friends and talk and it's wonderful. The fellowship we're having amongst Christians today in the wider family is terrific around Sydney. It's one of the great strengths of evangelism in Sydney is we have got so many Christians in fellowship with each other and such, so many churches where the Bible is being taught and where people love the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a tiny minority in this land of rich, young rulers, but yet we have a strength of fellowship which is quite unusual in the cities of the Western world. Quite unusual. To have four theological Bible colleges in one city who are all conservative theologically teaching the Bible is almost unheard of in the Western world. But we can just take it for granted here in Sydney. Uh, We've got all kinds of things. So now that we've calmed down, let me start again. Um, See, Jesus' analysis of belief and unbelief involves God doing the impossible, that is bringing rich people into the kingdom of heaven. So now I want to spend a little bit of time with you trying to understand wealth and the nowhere generation. I know we haven't come to who they are yet, and how we're we going to get to who they are—that's what's going to come. Let me ask why, getting you to ask it, talk to each other again. Hope you like the person you were sitting to beside last time, especially if it's your spouse. Uh, <laughs> why? Why is it impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? I mean, why is it impossible for anybody? Well, the answer is because of course, a sin. But why, in particular, is it impossible for the rich? to enter the Kingdom of Heaven. There you go, and I'll collect up some answers in a few moments. (laughs) Let's start hearing the, uh, (laughs) let's start pooling the wisdom of the room now, shall we? What's the the answer, what are the answers that we have? Yes, you were first last time. Very sensible. Always go first, because other people will take your wind from you. Um, Am I going to give you a chance to answer or not? (laughs) Yeah, we had to get used to it, hadn't we? Yeah, so wealth breeds wealth, so it's difficult not to fall into a trap of consumerism and you end up serving two masters. In wealth breeds wealth, you fall into consumerism and serving two masters, which we're told is impossible, yes. You have more to lose. You have more to lose, yes. Your the wealth becomes your security, yes. Yes, yeah, it's, it's back to front, isn't it? The first will be last, the last will be first, because with wealth, you're used to power and everybody's serving you. Whereas the kingdom's all about you serving everybody else. Yeah. Mhm. Uh, you have
8: more investment in this world if you have more money in this
2: world? You have more invested. That's for sure. When you have more wealth, you invest more. Yes, and you're invested more in this world and its systems and its structures and its ways. Yes. And there's the great deceitfulness of riches. The riches actually do con us, don't they, deceive us, yes? Um, wealth um, brings pride. Wealth brings people. pride, yeah? Uh,
0: and that can lead to someone um, thinking that
6: they know, know
2: everything themselves. Yep. With pride comes that arrogance of knowing everything and knowing it all for yourself and knowing how to run life, yes? whole range of reasons, aren't there? Sorry? Yes, you get really comfortable here, don't you? And especially in Sydney. It's got to be one of the most comfortable places in the world to live in. Uh, Helen always says, if you're going to be a poor person, be poor in a warm climate. Uh, And I don't know why she keeps mentioning this to me, but but there's great truth in that, isn't there? And this this is a place you can... If you're on the streets of London, you only have about 18 months before you're dead. That's just the way it is. It's horrible. It's not actually a joke, that, but, you know. <laughs> that, is, that is the realities. The streets of London are just too cold to actually be out on. It's a dreadful place to be, whereas London to Sydney, you could stay for donkey's years on the streets of Sydney and live well, I'm sad to say. Okay. Thank you for that. Jesus doesn't explain why, you'll notice, in that passage. No explanation why. The Bible does speak of riches and wealth often. And some of the answers that you've given indicate your biblical knowledge there, don't, don't they? For example, in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. just can't be done. So, of course, if you're serving money, there's no way you'll be serving God. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a passage that addresses the rich and tells them, amongst other things, not to be haughty, not The the trouble with the rich is they put their hope in this world, some of the things that you are saying. Rather than using their money for the age to come, they become self-satisfied with this world and not concerned about the next. Uh, Mark chapter 4, someone mentions the, uh, the deceitfulness of riches and then you get the parable of the sower which is in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. And the deceitfulness of riches comes out in the third soil, if you remember, that just chokes the word from you. It's the cares and worries and pleasures of the world. And our money gives us cares and worries and pleasures. And it chokes the word out of us. You see, the rich have too many options in life. Uh, too big a bucket bucket list. In fact, you have to be rich to have a bucket list. If you're a poor person in Eritrea, you don't even have a bucket, let alone a bucket list. The idea, well, I must see the Taj Mahal before I die. You know, I mean, I just want to stand there and photograph it. My friends... You can get better photographs off the the, uh, internet than anyone you'll take of the Taj Mahal and it'll still be there when you're dead. Don't worry about it. You can give the... Never mind. A photograph of the Taj Mahal has got to be one of the silliest things I've ever heard of. But we have this, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do all these things. There's this bucket that's fabulously wealthy to be like that. James chapter 4 Speaks about the riches of people. In fact, the Epistle of James speaks against riches. It's not that there's some virtue in poverty, poverty's awful. The Bible's always against poverty. You don't want to be poor. But the rich, why rich Christians are double minded and distracted by their wealth. And rich non Christians are indifferent to the gospel and distracted by their wealth. So as we ponder and understand wealth and the nowhere generation, notice first, the first thing we've got to grasp is that Australian wealth is actually a state of mind. It's it's not just the amount of money you have that makes you wealthy. It's the amount of money that you have that makes you unspiritual, that changes your perspective of yourself, and your world because you think from the viewpoint of wealth and of this world. You see, we tend to think that extravagant wealth is the, is the rich, the super rich. So when Jesus says, how hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, well, that's not me because I'm not Mr Gates. You know, I'm not Mr Packer. I, I think of the super rich. Uh, he's rich. I'm not. Therefore, he has to give up everything and follow Jesus. I don't. But... As as preachers are always trying to point out to us, Australians are amongst the richest people in the world. We have the second highest median income in the world. And not only are we the richest, but 21st century Australians are amongst the richest people in history. So we're not only richer than nearly everybody in the world, we're richer than almost anybody who's ever lived before us. We are significantly and seriously rich. The poorest of us are. See, our homes now are double the size of the 1950 homes. And the number of people in each home is half the number. So that, in fact, Australia has the largest homes in the world. We are the top nation if you measure homes in terms of people per square metre. We're number one in the world and in the history of the world. We're so rich that we've locked ourselves out of ever owning a home. Now, that's really rich, isn't it? Or stupid. Or both. Or that might be a tautology. And because we're locked out, we think we're poor. But none of us are hungry. All of us have access to some money. If you've got change in your pocket, you're ahead of most of the people of the world. It's not your possessions. It's being possessed by your possessions. It's thinking from the viewpoint of your possessions. It's wealth is having the opportunity to have choices. Wealth is the opportunity to live differently. Poor people do not have choices and they can't just choose to live differently. They've just got to try and survive. Survival is not your problem or my problem and not many Australians' problems other than the Indigenous Australians'. Australia is the land of opportunity which every migrant family has come knows it and over generations they build their wealth that was unimaginable back in their home country. Now I'd love to discuss migrant evangelism because it's really such a terrific opportunity and we're getting somewhere there in Australia. We're seeing more people coming from non-Anglo-Saxon background into the kingdom than we are seeing coming from Anglo-Saxon background into the kingdom and this is really terrific and exciting. And I'd like to discuss with you about the fact that generations of migrants are different, first generation, second generation, how we... but that's not tonight. That's another topic, another day. Let me turn our attention, though, to generational wealth by spelling it out in terms of three generations of Australians today. The oldest generation, the first generation, and and I'm going to now give you some really sweeping generalisations, but I'm happy to come back and fill in details of any of you like uh, because... I'm trying to say those kinds of generalisations which are just so manifestly true statistically that I don't have to justify them. But I'm also attaching it loosely to a book which I found very stimulating and helpful to read. a few months ago. It's come out this year. It's a non-Christian book by a man called David Goodhart. He's an Englishman. It's called The Road to Somewhere and it shows in the light of the Brexit voting and in the light of the Trump voting that the societies of the Western world are now becoming deeply divided between, as he would say, somewhere people and anywhere people. And from his analysis of somewhere people and anywhere people, I've come up with nowhere people. That's where the title comes from, from my reading of David Goodhart. It's a good read. It's an interesting read. Just an analysing society, I'd commend it to you. In Australia, you can't be blamed for when you're born. So when I talk critically about each of these generations... Don't take it personally, especially if you belong to that generation that takes everything personally. <laughs> the first oldest generation is the, is the nation builders. This is a group of people who lived through two world wars and a depression. Many of them, many, many of them were out of work for one, two, three years through the depression, lived in terrible, terrible poverty, My father used to inflict upon us tripe and chocos as a meal because he thought it was such a good meal, for that's what he lived on in the Depression. I can't stand tripe. And most of you don't know what a choco is. (laughs) And may I say, blessed upon you that you do not know what they are. After the Second World War, having gone through two world wars and the Depression, That was the generation that built this nation. They were British people. They were Christian. They were deeply divided over Protestantism and Catholicism. Their cultural Christianity was a communal way of living. They lived for each other as a society in a way that we find almost impossible to understand. They married early and they had children. Especially coming back from the Second World War, they had many, many, many children. It's called the baby boomer generation They lived in towns. They lived in suburbs. They didn't live in the inner city unless they were poor and they certainly didn't live in the central business district. They didn't like living in in, uh, high-rise. They didn't have any high-rise, but they didn't like living in lifts. They didn't have motor cars, refrigerators, washing machines. They lived on their quarter-acre blocks and raised their families there and they went to church because the society closed down on weekends... They identified themselves with their place, with their locality, because they couldn't travel, they didn't travel, but they were community-minded people. They didn't have television, so they went out at night, socialising up and down around the streets, walking with each other, and their clubs were local clubs. They were deeply committed to... Eastern Suburbs Rugby League Club or St George Rugby League Club, or the locality of the club mattered because the people who played in those clubs came from their locality. They were small town people even when they were in the suburbs. The next generation, the second generation, were their children, the baby boomers. They were the anywhere people. They grew up with the growing wealth of their parents in a time of peace and prosperity They didn't face a world war, they didn't face a depression. There was almost a recession in 1961 but it was just an almost one. They were the first generation to go to university. Their parents didn't go to university. They were the first generation to go to university. They were anti their parents though. They were anti-British, they were anti-Christian. The 1960s sexual revolution changed the way they thought and lived. The 1970s brought in multiculturalism as we got rid of the white Australia policy. The 1970s brought in feminism. The 1980s brought in the materialism of greed is good. They were hard science, technology, materialistic people and they were the first family of Australians raised in divorced families and under child maintenance. These were the people who lived, well, anywhere for they no longer defined themselves by their location. Those who grew up in a country town left as soon as they could to come to university, never to return. And they travelled. They travelled overseas lots in ways their parents never could even imagine doing. And they gave up economic protectionism and became citizens of the world with a global economy. There's the baby boomers. Tony, where did you grow up? Lismore. Lismore. When did you leave Lismore? Soon as as he could. What age was that? 18. 18. Why? University. University. How how long have you lived back in Lismore since? Never, exactly. Classic. (laughs) Did your parents go to university? No. No. First generation, university, leave home, no longer a Lismore boy. Lived more time out of Lismore than in Lismore. The third generation are the children of the baby boomers. They're known as millennials, but I have to be very, very careful about what I say about them because part of their culture is to be soft and inclusive and they're easily offended by, as victims of misrepresentation from grumpy old men. The millennials moved from anywhere to nowhere, for they were born into wealthy, international-minded families. Their parents were anywhere people, so they were a generation further removed from somewhere. They were part of a city that had become a global city. They took tertiary education as kind of normal. No big deal, going to university doesn't everybody. And they grew up in a society which was not Anglo, Christian, cultural. It was a multicultural society which then automatically became relativistic about religion and about morality. Their morality was no longer personal morality. It's much more social morality. They were well indoctrinated to be green, progressive and inclusive. And they, of course, were the children of dysfunctional families and the computer world, which then makes them isolated into individualism. As I said, sweeping generalisations. I'm not talking about every individual. Please do not take offence. Now, (laughs) if the cat fits, wears it, you know, that's all right. Now, I want to leave out the anywhere people so as to help us understand really where we're at And see the difference between the somewhere people and the nowhere people. In summary, it runs something like this, you see. The somewhere people are family people who live in a location, a suburban location, a country town location, and are committed to making that a better place for the society around about. They're working working to middle class people and manual workers. A lot of them are trades people. They often are migrant people, the first generation in of migrants who are still working in the factories in order that their children may get ahead and go to university and the like. They are conservative because they're hanging on to their cultures from home and they are generally within society as a whole powerless. Whereas the nowhere people are nearly all child free. That's part of it. You put off children as long as you can and have as few as possible. They are global people who live in the city. They're not interested in country towns. They're not really interested in suburbs. For them, it's the movement from the suburb into Newtown, into the city. Uh, They are middle class to upper class people in the Australian working conditions. They tend to become the professional people. There's a greater propensity of them that are the Anglos and they perceive themselves not as conservatives but progressive, whatever that means, and they are the powerful people because they control the media, they control politics, they control uh, unions, they control the, the, the business world, they control—they are the people in control. Think for a moment, if you want to understand and where this book comes from is the politics, think of it in terms of political terms. When the plebiscite came out, look who the yes voters were, look who the no voters were. It was stark in Sydney more than anywhere else, wasn't it? that the somewhere people lived in a band of migrant suburbia. And the people who voted most firmly for yes lived in this place, Moore College. And, <laughs> and... No, that's not right. <laughs> lived in Newtown, Redfern and in the inner city. That is where it was the most commonly seen. And, but you see it also in Brexit... Brexit was a vote against the nowhere people, as was the vote for Mr. Trump. The the iron workers, the steel workers who had been out of work in Pennsylvania for generations, they were voting against globalisation. Make America great again. Let us pull back from the world to be ourselves once more. You can see it even in the Queensland election last week. Quite interesting, you see how the mainstream parties are losing power because our society is becoming more and more divided. But the division was, in the extreme ends, the two ends, the division of somewhere and nowhere people. Nine per cent voted green. And the only seats they're likely to win are in the inner city of Brisbane, where nothing's green. Whereas 13% voted for One Nation and Pauline Hanson, right? But if you check the newspapers, they hardly ever tell you that One Nation outvoted the Greens. That's not really discussed in places like the Sydney Morning Herald because it's run by nowhere people who are deeply offended by the somewhere people. Sorry, yeah, the somewhere people. (laughs) You got it wrong. I'm not for one nation, I'm not against the green well, and and <laughs> just say these are the different, just a sociological analysis of what is happening in our society, and the nowhere people are everly increasing, and the reaction is therefore getting stronger, and our society is pulling itself apart. Western society is doing that. See, how do you Move from being a somewhere person to being a nowhere person. Well, what is it that changes people like this? Well, the key element in America, in Britain and in Australia, the key step is Tony's step go to university. That's where it happens. That's where A large proportion of the population now are raised up somewhere in a suburb or in a country town, but as soon as possible, they're pushed into the university world where they, in their heads, become rich young rulers. They become nowhere people. They do not return back to their suburb. Once they graduate, they start to work in the city. And once they start working in the city they start moving to other cities and they meet up with people who've come from not around their suburb but from another part of Sydney and they marry and go elsewhere if they choose to marry at all, of course, rather than just shack up with one person after another. But they don't let children interfere with their progress in life because their progress in life is all about material wealth. It's about careerism. It's about themselves and where they're going. It's not about the country town that they've deserted, the suburb they've deserted, or even their family that they've deserted. When it happens is 18 to 30. It's in that period of time, that age phase of life, that the great decisions of the rest of your life are made. By and large, the advertising industry tells us that what a person is by 30 is what a person is going to be by 70. You don't change much. The music you like when you're in your 70s is the music you liked when you're in your 20s. 1170 on the radio station of AM will demonstrate my point to you on that regard. Every decade, they make it 10 years later (laughs) because that's when you came alive. That's when you were not family anymore. You were yourself at that point. The entrance was the university and beyond that was the work but the work now dominated your life not the family not the home different if you're a tradie tradies leave school earlier tradies work locally they live locally the shire is full of tradies which is why the inner city laughs at the shire because it's a different culture It's a different way of understanding and living. You come to an inner city church, there are very few two-generational families. There's actually very few families. You go out the shire, you'll see grandpa and grandma and dad and mum and the children and then even the little babies, three, four generations in the same church. It's a different way of understanding. You're a somewhere person as opposed to a nowhere person. And the difference lies in the effect of wealth. That's where it happens. See, from eighteen to thirty, now then the baby boomers, more people go on to year twelve than have ever done before. Uh, When I was growing up, the majority have left school at fifteen or sixteen. Large numbers went into trades, many more couldn't go into trades. Very, it was a minority actually finished year 12. Well, we didn't finish year 12 because being much more intelligent, we only had five years of high school. We didn't need a sixth year like you guys did. But most didn't go to the leaving certificate and even those who did go to the leaving certificate, most didn't go on to university. Even when I came to Moore College here in the 1960s, the majority of students in Moore College were not university graduates. They were bank tellers, they were barbers, they were uh, uh, clerks in offices, they were retail uh, assistants who were the students of Moore College. Whereas today you come into Moore College, they're doctors, lawyers, dentists, they're, they're engineers, they're scientists. They're, there's very few without university degrees. Some have PhDs before they come to Moore College. There's a, a, a shift, of quite enormous shift, from one generation to the next. And the courses at uni get longer and longer and longer. They are talking about primary school teachers needing five years at university to teach in primary school. Um, We were taught by teachers who only had two years, which may explain a lot. Um, (laughs) And we've got to go longer and longer, we've got to do double degrees, double degrees, complete phony. Of course it just means the university gets more money out of the government. And uh, if everybody gets a double degree, then everybody's degree is halved in value, isn't it? And that's what's happened. There are fewer and fewer people going into trades, which is why tradies are now making lots of money, because there's so few of them anymore. But there's also the social... Marriage is getting later and later. Uh, When I was a young man, the average age of marriage was 21 for the males and 19 for the females. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because now people don't get married till their 30s. The average age of having children was in the... Uh, the first child was in the low 20s, 23, 24. Now the average age of having the first child is 30, 31. I may say medically one is a lot healthier than the other. And they have fewer and fewer children. And therefore, of course, fewer and fewer grandchildren for the baby boomers. And more and more people are travelling. Travelling for pleasure taking a gap year, that was unthought of in my generation, a gap year and to travel around the world just for pleasure, to go to Bali and get stuck there because of (laughs) the volcano, that was an unthought of possibility and the idea that you would travel for work and that you would be in companies that took you in other places, that was an unthought of thing and all these things people don't notice but they meant that you were loosed from your family. You were loosed from the place of origin, from place itself, from your roots. You're inducted into a world and taken on a 12-year journey that breaks all your relationships. It's not simply the changes, it's it's the transitions that you go through in those changes. As you adapt to new situations, one after another after another, So in your adaptations, your identity changes as to who you are as a person and you accommodate yourself to the new reality, to the new experiences. So let me show you a quick progress of a nowhere person. They leave school, go on a gap year, then go to university, have their first job and then they go flatting, they go interstate, they fall in love, they go overseas, they find their second job, they have their heart broken, they go to their third job... They get engaged, they do their MBA and they come back and get married and have children and go to suburbia. That's what happened between 18 and 30, 18 and 40. That's what happens. But the suburbia they go back to is a different suburbia because they're a different person. For all those years of being a nowhere person, you don't go back happily into being a somewhere person. And you carry with it change. That is how the society has been changing since the 1960s. Transforming young adults into a different kind of person to live in the suburbs and raise their children. And the next generation is more radicalised than the previous generation. And so it goes on. But it all is money, it's wealth. Only a rich society can do this. Let me try and show you a picture of it. See, look at the picture of our students from 2017. There they are, happy group of people there. Uh, you see, I think that picture goes on the front of your outline too, right? But uh, uh, starting uh, with the one closest to me, furthest away from me, uh, is Candy. She's just married on the honeymoon at the moment. Uh, she comes from Hong Kong. Uh, She's grown up in Sydney, speaks Cantonese and Mandarin and she's just married uh, and is going to minister in New Zealand in Auckland where she's never had anything to do with anything there before. Um, John, I'll explain John in a moment, beside him or behind him is Greg, Greg's gone back to minister in Melbourne, is not with us tonight because of that. Peter we know comes from Belfast and we're sending him back. Uh Talar is up there at the other end of the table next to me and Talar uh, has grown up uh, in uh, the northern parts of Sydney as of, from an Armenian family and uh, she is now going to minister in Yaguna uh, uh, and still trying to work out how best to reach the Armenian community. We met Tim uh, before who has... Uh, Uh, is now going back to his native North Shore as far north as you can. I call it Southern Queensland. And (laughs) Then we have Christine and Christine uh, is working our PowerPoints at the moment. Uh, Christine's the closest we've got to a somewhere person really in that uh, she comes from uh, Bosley Park and is moving to Fairfield or she comes from Fairfield and is moving to Bosley Park. She's finished college here and she and her husband are ministering there although they went to Japan earlier this year and they thought they might go to Japan. (laughs) So in her head she's a nowhere person though her body is still somewhere. <laughs> and then Lucy, we met who wants to reach Mandarin people. Lucy was born in China and then came here when she was 4 and then she uh, went to North Sydney Girls High but then she went back to China for a couple of years of education, then came back and lived in the hills and then came to Sydney, uh, New South Wales University, that's right, uh, and then has worked here, there and everywhere. And she's a Mandarin-speaking Chinese girl who happens to be in this room tonight, but the location is an irrelevance to her in her life. Now, let me shout to you with John. John, John, where's John? Come, uh, come out here, John. John is a classic nowhere man.
9: <laughs> Aren't you? I am, yes. Okay, where were you born? Uh, born in Vancouver to a uh, Canadian-Scottish mother and an Assyrian father who was born in Iran but made his way to Canada via Baghdad. So.
2: Okay, so where did you
9: grow up? So early years in Vancouver, but then my parents decided that they would um, leave Vancouver and uh, go to Fairfield in the western suburbs of Sydney. And so I grew up at Bosley Park, generations above christine yeah and what'd you go to school in, in Bosby park yeah i went to school in bosley park i was in a nominal christian family and in the school i didn't know a single actual christian in the whole school right
2: then after school you went where
9: after school i somehow ended up getting to sydney uni to do science and there i studied chemistry and applied mathematics and realized that I was uh, had enough of the lab and wanted to get into some sort of marketing role. So what did you do? So as it happened, I got a job working for a chemical trading company. And it started off this kind of medium, small sort of little business, and it ended up becoming kind of the number two in Australia and just expanded and through sort of through its me marketing on. and salesman. Y- yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, through that I got to travel around Australia and then overseas visiting chemical factories and, and all that sort of thing. But you moved overseas. Sort of I did. That wasn't good enough, so I thought um, I should go on a working holiday, so I, um, against my dad's wishes, he said, don't do that, you'll never get paid the, the same amount of money, but I didn't listen to him, so I went off to the UK to do what you do uh, as an, an Aussie, and did my two years over there in the, in the chemical industry over there. And um, I was a but pretty young Christian at the time, Now, actually. you became a Christian.
2: How hmm. old were you when you became
9: a Christian? became a Christian at 27, so just in that sort of 20s, just at the very end. And uh, I was a Christian for a year and then uh, told my minister I was going to the UK and gave him heart palpitations, I'm sure, as a young Christian, sort of just dashed off. How long were you in England? I was in London for two years. Uh, fortunately, got stuck into a good church there. Could have gone out the way. It sort of um, weren't great options in the UK in London at that time. Um, but I was there for two years and then returned back to Sydney. What did you bring back with you? Uh, actually, I, I kind of came back and split up with a, an ex uh, de facto who I'd been living with as, uh, as a Christian, as a non-Christian for many years. And so I was a single bloke. And um, as it happened though, um, uh, I had a friend who. Uh, knew some people from all college because she would spent uh, some time in New Zealand working with some all college graduates for two years in the university scene. She happened, uh, this old friend, this friend that I met in, in London, she happened to be visiting Sydney and so um, we ended up um, yeah getting uh, started dating and, and she got engaged to this, this bloke and moved out here for that. So.
2: so she's pretty well nowhere. She's
9: now a nowhere person. Yeah okay and now
2: you've finished more college.
9: I am. We've uh, sort of uh, decided to, after getting married here in Sydney, went back to London for two years to do uh, some theological education at Cornhill. Did that for two years, bit of ministry in the UK, came back to Sydney so that I could come to this great place, Moore College. Top place. Um, and now, having just finished three years, we are shipping off again. And we're going to the southeast of England uh, to minister there. And we want to be there for two reasons. One is for great gospel need in the UK, and uh, the other is for my wife's father-in-law, who is uh, elderly and going to need
2: care in the next few years. That's a nowhere, mate. (laughs) He's nowhere, really. Uh, Fairfield Bosley Park does not feel home for you. Uh, When you said, you know, they're citizens of the
9: world, that was really kind of... That hit home a bit because, uh, you know, my daughters have got two passports where we feel a bit sort of uh, fluid, where we could just move from one place to the other, uh, the pain comes in the relationships.
2: And that means you won't be able to serve us in the federal parliament? Uh, definitely <laughs> not, no. <laughs> OK. Paul, come down the front, brother. Paul. Paul's going to join us next year. Uh, he's just finished first year. And he, he's uh, replacing John as, the, as our uh, resident, fully-fledged, nowhere person. Uh, they're nearly all nowhere people in Moore College. Uh, Paul, where did you grow up?
10: Uh, well, a couple of country towns and then um, teenage years in Perth.
2: I see. And why did you go to Perth? Family uh, went to Perth. Family, yeah, following Dad's career. Okay, so you went to university in Perth? Yep, in Perth, yeah. And then what did you do after uni?
10: I uh, went to Melbourne. That was my first job. Yeah, and then? Uh, then Just I went... run
2: through what's happened since.
10: Oh, so, yeah, okay, so I went to, went to Melbourne. That was my first engineering role and then I came back to Perth. Uh, then uh, got married to Broman, who I'd met in Melbourne. She went to, she'd been in Brisbane. Then we got married. We went to Perth. But she comes from Adelaide. Of course. <laughs> and then we went to the UK. Yeah. And then from there we went to Canada. And yeah. then we came back to Perth. Uh-huh. And then work transferred us a few years later to the US. And they said, you can come back to Perth if you like, but there's no job there. If you want employment, you've got to come to Sydney. And here we are.
2: And where'd you become a Christian in all this zigzagging around the world? In Sydney, so about five years ago. About five years ago, having gone all through this tripping everywhere. Yeah. Right. And now you've finished first year college? That's right, yep. Which is good news, isn't it? Uh,
10: Hopefully, the exam results are still two weeks away.
2: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have you either way, brother. Thank you very much. You see, this is is the growing world. This is a completely different concept of being a human than the concept in which the first generation lived. It's the dream of the baby boomers. It's the reality of the millennials. How are we going to evangelise them? How are we going to have a gospel ministry to such people? At last I've come to the topic, gospel ministry in the nowhere generation. You didn't know I was going to get there, did you? You see, we're ministering to the nowhere person who is in constant change. Three evangelistic things happen. One positive, two negatives. The positive is there are increased evangelistic opportunities all over the world because they are world citizens. They think, they meet, they constantly meeting people. The negatives are the adaptations that they keep making reduce people's Christian identity. And the changes keep loosening Christian relationships. Let me take it through. Firstly, the positive, which is the main one, then the negative. The positive is, the good news doesn't change whether people are nowhere people, somewhere people or anywhere people. It's still the same gospel that's going to lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel never changes. The people in their 20s have the lowest responsibility and the highest uh, ability. Health, education, mobility. Wealth gives you The capacity to do anything. Marvellous, wonderful. To those who are given much, much will be required. You have great times to devote yourself to Christ like no other generation has had, and it's a great time to invest in the lives of others. The resources have never been greater. University ministries around Australia have never been larger. Tomorrow morning I'm off to uh, the national training event. We think there's going to be 2,000 people at the national training event. That is fantastic. Across Australia, who else is coming tomorrow? Uh, Yeah, there we go. So there's all kinds of us heading down just tomorrow uh, to the national training event. It's fantastic. Doesn't happen in other countries. Couldn't gather 2,000. Paul, how many could you gather in, in France? 120, that's three times our population, twice our population, two and a half times our population, 120. Australia has such privilege opportunity of so many wonderful young men and women to preach the gospel throughout the world. And they are educated. I mean, it's really bad that they're spending so much time in their education, but on the other hand, we have an educated population who can teach the Bible like no other generation has ever been able to do. The nowhere generation is mobile and is connected. The 25-year-old male knows more people than anybody else. That's an extraordinary statistic. It's come out of phone usages in Europe. And the overseas mission field is accessible to Australians. With our passport, we can go almost anywhere in the world. And what you are at 30 is what you will be at 70. So here is the opportunity to deepen your gospel convictions and to deepen the gospel convictions of other educated young adults. It is a terrific moment in human history. The negatives? Well, the dropout rate amongst Christians is highest in their 20s. You can understand why. So this constant changing weakens, weakens your identity as a Christian as we adapt to changes. Our changes are all built on materialism and on careerism, on getting ahead, on our work. No longer am I identified as a sydney cider. I'm identified as an engineer or as a chemist or as a... I've changed my personal identity just in accepting the career choices of the tertiary educated. Relationships with other Christians keep on being fractured as we change churches. And we don't have deep relationships. Facebook doesn't work like that. It, it helps relationships that exist, but it doesn't help create the relationships of any depth. And churches are built on the basis of localised family suburban life. Our churches, the strong ones, are nearly all family churches. And in the 20s and 30s, we're non-family people. They don't connect with us anymore. I mean, when we were young, even up to university, staying at home because Australians do, we, we were the youth leader or the Sunday school teacher, but after uni, we were pensioned off or we dropped out of doing it. We used to go to beach mission and camps, but after uni we didn't want to give up our holidays because we no longer had six months' holiday a year (laughs) or whatever it is. And you haven't been at a new church long enough to be trusted to lead any new ministry. And so by the time you've established yourself in the new church... You're so busy at work and everything else, you haven't got time to take up the opportunities they'd want to give you. What you are at 30 is what you'll be at 70. If you've dropped out by then, you will have dropped out. This is the ministry area of Two Ways Ministries. Didn't know we were going to be here when we started off. We're just going to evangelise by teaching the Bible. But the more we've done it, the more we've seen that we're targeting the 18- to 30-year-olds. It is the critical group. The churches can't always do it. I'm a great believer in the churches and I don't want us to be replacing church. I'm wanting to assist and help the churches, but the churches are built on somewhere. Unless it's a city church, it's not built on nowhere. And the people we're dealing with are nowhere people. And so that's why we want to build a network Help have people have relationships that go beyond the immediate. And we're not alone in what we're doing. It's not like Two Ways to Live. Is, Two Ways Ministries is the only one that's doing it. AFES is doing it for uni students. But AFES needs to help make the bridge out of university. City Bible Forums are doing it. Terrific ministry. If you work in the centre of the city. But most people don't work in the centre of the city. But if you are, join up with City Bible Forum. because they're terrific. Matthias Media is doing it. We've, we've got Moore College is doing it. And Moore College is the hub of nowhere peoples. By the time you come to Moore College, you're a nowhere person. And you're being trained, unfortunately, for somewhere ministries. But you're a nowhere person. It's just one of the difficulties we have. And we've established other churches like FIEC churches, etc., but we are specialising more and more into this critical age group, challenging them to live single-mindedly and boldly for Christ. For if you're not deep in your convictions for Christ at 30, you're lost for 70. So that's what we're doing, creating this network of like-minded Christians that will support the work alongside other local churches working working in and especially in more College who have given us hospitality in this fine institution to train tomorrow's evangelistic leaders. That is, we're challenging the rich young rulers of Christianity to get out and evangelise, to use their wealth, to use their youth, to use their ruling to take the gospel to the ends of the world. That's what we're doing. We're challenging them to give their all to follow Jesus, to live boldly and single-mindedly for him, but only then will the gospel spread around the world and in the future generations. And only then will the gospel be preserved in your own generation. So, do you want to ask any questions, make any comments for us at this stage? We've got a couple of mics that rove around. Talar's got one waving, I don't know. Yero's got the other one. You can yell out a comment without a microphone if you've got a good loud voice. Do you want to ask a question, anybody, about what we said? Tony is smiling. He's never seen me finish twice in time before. You can teach old dogs new tricks. Yeah, bro
1: Thanks, Philip. Um, question concerning the implications of what you've just said for our somewhere based churches. So I'm actually really excited to hear the rationale behind what you're doing and, and see how you're filling the gap. I'm just wondering whether there are, like, do we need to change the nature of Church or, yes, anything along those lines?
2: I'd be interested in your thoughts. Suburban churches are terrifically powerful and wonderful. They're the ones who produce the children who at 18 go off. But our suburban churches do need to think more constructively about how they're preparing people for their 18 to 30-year wander. Now, in some areas, they don't need to. But in most areas, what I notice is they just say goodbye And so I suspect the church at Lismore just waved Tony goodbye and he was on his own. I don't think that's good enough. We've actually got to spend time preparing them for what is going to happen. Um, But, no, the suburban church is the suburban church. It's got a mission field and it's an important mission field. It's about families. It's about children. They're really important. Suffer the children to come and to be. They're about old people too because that's where you wind up. And I'm for that too. But... (laughs) The Christian community has to work on the how do we create structures for the 18 to 30s. Parachurch movements, developing better city churches, better uni churches, those kinds of things. City Bible Forum, getting it to expand. I mean, it's in good hands with Peter Caldor and uh, Al Stewart. But that kind of ministry we've got to see in partnership with the local churches more and more. For this age group, when people start having the kids and settle back into suburbia, we've then got to help them adjust back into that life. Some of them find it very hard to adjust back into that life. Um, Now, Christians, by the way, are much better off this than non-Christians. You know, the women who have the the lowest birth rate in Australia are in Melbourne, nothing surprises you there, does it, Uh, who are university graduates and atheists. They are the women who have the fewest children there's something. Whereas religious people have larger families because we are committed to other people. We're committed to love. We're committed to relationship. We're committed to life. We have a different view. And so it's still there that the Christians are more suburban than the non-Christian world. But in the 18 to 30 you can reach the non-suburban world if your heart's in it. Our job is to get the heart in it. Where are we going? Yeah, yeah, there's one down here. Yeah. yeah. Put your hand up so A knows to walk around and give you where it is or whatever it is. Yes. Hi. Philip,
3: um, well, thanks so much for your talk. And uh, when you kept saying that um, what you are at 30 is what you are at 70, that really, like, like rings true for me. And it You're also... you 70? Like, uh, <laughs> no, yeah in your 20s you do feel like that's when you can get like snatched away by like the different uh, values of the world and then um yeah I was wondering like I feel this sense of urgency about wanting to really commit my life to Christ but um as like a worker who spends a lot of time at work and um like I was really like yeah saddened by the fact that um like you said Like, we used to be going on beach mission and doing all these things, but now we don't have, like, the lead. Would your advice be to, like, um, go to jobs where we have the least working hours possible, given that we are wealthy and can make those choices, and then dedicate our time to, like, evangelising and um, spending time in our churches? Okay,
2: thank you. What would our
3: practical next steps be?
2: Thank you. I want to qualify one thing. I believe in the sovereignty of God converting people over the age of 30. So it is possible you can reach 30 and still get converted, John and Paul being two examples of people converted over the age of 30. It's impossible for God to convert rich old people as well as rich young people, but it's only under God's sovereignty. However, in general, what you are 30 is what you are 70, and yes, you want to get involved fully, yes. What I've tried to encourage people from university, and I saw it last weekend at the... uh, what, what was the camp I was at last weekend? It was Summer life. Summer life Crusade. Is that when you leave university, you've got several basic choices to make. Uh, what job I'm going to have, where I'm going to live, which church I'll go to, uh, whether I'm going to get married or not. There's those kind of basic choices that happen across the 20s. The non Christian chooses on the basis of where's the best job I can get, where's the best house I can get, and I don't bother much about church. The Christian really needs to reverse the decision. What ministry do I want to give? That's if you're rich. That's if you've got opportunities. That's if you've got privilege. We have. What ministry do I want to go into? What house do I need to be in to be able to do that? What job do I need to be able to pay the rent to be able to do the ministry? It reverses the values because I'm living for the kingdom not living for this world with a kingdom as being my Sunday hobby. <laughs> and so we heard the, the summer life mission teams have been going up and down the coast of New South Wales evangelising teenagers and up at um, Foster, was Foster wasn't one of our girls there, saw that people were getting converted one summer, but when you go back next summer, they're not anywhere to be found. And she said, we need some more people in Foster. So she quit her job in Sydney and she moved to Foster to join the church in Foster in order and then she found the place to live and then she found a job <laughs> to be able to live in Foster. She's been there three or four years now, something like that. As a consequence, the Foster team this year was half made up of people from Foster. So instead of just Sydney siders going up, doing 10 days and leaving, the Foster team is Foster and Sydney people and whatever context they have, they can follow up. You see, it's a a simple strategy, but the key to that strategy was somebody who had the gospel first in their heart and who was willing to have a lesser job in a lesser place, excuse me saying Foster's a lesser place, but, you know, (laughs) I'm a Sydney-sider, in a lesser place for the cause of the gospel. Now, we expect that of full-time missionaries, but all Christians are missionaries. Some are self-funded, some are funded by other people. So work out where your mission is first, then work out accommodation, then work out job. Rather than being one of the rich nowhere people who thinks job first, accommodation second, biggest mortgage as possible so as to tie myself down in slavery, and then (laughs) finally I might go to church, I wonder what's around here. Tony, I think I've come to the time. There's one minute left, and I doubt whether they are going to get a Q&A in one minute, am I? <laughs>
0: uh, I'm actually going to, um, to ask you one final question, oh. um, and that is, uh, given the Two Ways Ministries is, is focusing on this uh, demographic, as it were, this, this ministry, what are the actual plans for next year? What are you actually going to do in
2: 2018? Uh, the, sh- <clears throat> the plans are about people. The structures, the ministry's about people, the plans are about structures, let me put it that way. What we're really doing is picking up with people. That's what matters. It's one-to-one networking that really matters. But in our structures, we're going to continue with our forums. This year, we've worked out, fortnightly didn't work, so we're going for four months where we'll do it every Thursday, Friday night of the month. Uh, It's repeat Thursday, repeat Friday. And so March, May, August, September and in August we're going to stop talking about evangelism, we're going to run the forums evangelistically uh, here in in Moore College. Great place to do it in Moore College because this is the centre of nowhere nowhere Sydney Central, uh, is this somewhere. And the trajectories, we've had 10 trajectories now we've run with about 30 to 40 people at each one. And so it's about time we gathered everybody together. So we're running only two trajectory weekends this year, but much bigger. 120 or something like that people will be at each of those so that the people who met in 30s or 40s this year or the year before will now meet up with a much bigger group and so we can further reinforce the, uh, the networking that we do. So we have to invent a new program to make the trajectory weekends work. We also run a... Uh, a once-a-year convention on the Queen's birthday weekend because nobody else does anything on the Queen's birthday weekend and it's the middle of winter and we fill this place. This year we filled it, so we're going to have to work out how we'll run a three-ring circus and use some of the other lecture theatres for the Queen's birthday weekend and uh, we haven't worked out what the topic's going to be yet. Friends, if we want to get a big crowd, love, sex and marriage. If we want to get a small crowd, Deuteronomy. <laughs> But we'll work it out.
0: Or money. That's the other one that drives them away, I've found. Uh, sure. <clears throat> okay. Um, now, you, you were saying that um, you spoke up at Summer Life last uh, last weekend, so you're speaking around the place. Um, what sort of speaking, or are you doing any writing in terms of your own personal output of material? What sort of stuff's on your mind?
2: Yeah, we're speaking. I'm speaking in a lot of places, but um, we're now trying to refine our invitations to the 18 to 30 group. Now, I speak at other church house parties or something like that. I'm going down next year to speak for um, Max Maddox, who uh, used to be of Mobile Mission Maintenance, but he's a farmer who runs farming ministries down in Melbourne, in, in Victoria. So uh, I thought that's a foreign enough for your mission field to go to. Uh, so occasionally I go outside the 18 to 30, but you keep getting invited to go to lots and lots of places. Which one are you going to choose to, which one's not? We're purposely aiming to choose to go to those kinds of conferences which deal with the age group that we're aiming at so as to continue to build the network. In terms of writing, yes, I have finished, uh, and Helen is editing, uh, because other people won't do the job, uh, <laughs> writing a commentary on one and two Timothy, which we're about to send to the publisher in about two weeks' time, um, which would uh, be lovely to get off the, uh, uh, off the desk at last. And I've written about 100,000 words on the subject of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be published in Matthias Media, which now needs to be trimmed back to about 60,000. 60,000 readable words is a h- better than 100,000 unreadable ones, generally, you would say.
0: And, and then you've also got to get them in the right order. That's, that's also. Oh,
2: no-one told me that.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Philip, thanks very much.
0: Thank you. There's lots to pray about in what Philip has been speaking about just over the last few minutes, uh, about our nation, about the state of our nation and the challenges we face as Christians, about the generation that's rising up um, that faces, on the one hand, such opportunities and riches and wealth and ability and capacity for ministry and, on the other hand, uh, a mission field and a climate and an evangelistic soil that is tough. Uh, There's lots to pray about. I think we should pray Um, Why don't you just, with the person just next to you, just in twos and threes, just spend a few minutes praying for the evangelism of our nation, for the generation that we've heard about today, for Two Ways Ministries and the work it's doing and for anything else that's come up in your own heart and mind as you've listened to Philip tonight. So let's just spend a few moments praying together and then I'll close in prayer in just a few minutes' time. Let's close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of your gospel. We thank you that you do the impossible through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the power of your spirit, that you speak your truth into people's hearts and that you turn them, turn them around and bring them to you, no matter how hard those hearts are. We thank you so much, Father, that you've done this for so many of us here in this room, that you've done the impossible in our lives. And we pray that you would, Father, give us your spirit to keep speaking your word into other people's lives, that you might do this for them as well. Uh, We thank you for all we've heard tonight, Father, not only about the challenges we face, but about the wonderful opportunities. We thank you for the work of Philip um, and for all the work the Two Ways Ministries and the team are doing for Wendy and for Sophie and the support staff and for everybody who's helping on the team. And we pray, Father, that you would prosper and bless this work, not only in this next year, but in years to come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, who you are at 30 is who you are at 70, we heard about five times tonight. (laughs) And that's the amazing thing about Philip, really, who he was at 30. Challenging rich young rulers at university campuses to live single-heartedly and boldly for Christ is who he is at 70. Challenging young people to live boldly and single-mindedly for Christ. And I'm terribly grateful. I'm grateful to God. I don't want to embarrass him. I'm grateful to God for what God has done in his life that he is still doing this at 70 with such vigour and with such insight and with such skill that when other people are off caravanning around Australia at his age... He's instead travelling around Australia speaking the gospel to people and raising up a new young network, a new generation of people to live for Christ. Not so much a grey nomad as a, as a grey prophet, you might say, um, who wants to continue to do this work and invest in this new generation. And we should continue to support him, I think, in it. To pray for him, to pray for strength and health. He's got wonderful strength and health at present. Pray that God would continue to give it to him so he can keep doing this wonderful work And to support him as well, of course, by giving money to support the work that Two Ways Ministries does and to pay for the work that we're hearing about tonight that is just so exciting. I certainly would love to see Philip keep doing this for as long as God gives him strength. And the little ministry he's set up, the team he's set up around him with Wendy and Sophie offering support and organising him and putting him on the road and looking after everything, that team of support and the student ministry team that he's assembled uh, is a wonderful team that does support him and does help this whole ministry happen. It does cost money though. And as you'll see on the, on the front of this card, it costs somewhere around $220,000 each year to run the Two Ways Ministries ministry. Um, Hardly any of that, I I, I want you to know, goes to Philip himself. Um, You'll see here this little pie chart, if you go back to the pie chart, that gives you some kind of idea of the breakdown of where the money goes. The largest bulk of it goes to paying the student ministry bursaries. To pay for those eight students to work with Philip every year, to be trained by him and to influence the college that way and to go out from here, Uh, the bursary and training costs are considerable. The trajectory conferences cost money, not only because uh, we subsidise the conferences to make them as accessible and affordable for the students or the young people as possible, but the organisational costs of Sophie and Wendy running and driving those conferences. Uh, then there's a, a section there that's very nicely and euphemistically called Enabling Philips Ministry. And that's basically Wendy and Sophie running Philip's life for him. It's basically getting him on the road, organising him, getting to where he needs to be, running his diary, organising everything, and they work very hard so that Philip can be as effective as he possibly can. Uh, That's that cost. And you said that little sliver of blue is direct ministry expenses. Those are just Philip's travel costs and entertainment and books and computer costs. Um, That's the money that goes to him personally to cover expenses and there's some miscellaneous office running costs. So as you can see, it's a a budget that's all about the people we're investing in, Uh, the student ministers, the trajectory conferences and forums, and the team that keeps Philip running and keeps him on the road and keeps it all happening. Um, And so I want to really encourage you that it's time to invest and support him in this and keep this happening. It must keep going. It's a very exciting and very worthwhile ministry and we need to support it. And that's what this support card is about. Uh, You want to grab this out now because we're all going to fill it in. In time-honoured Philip fashion, everybody fills in the card. Um, Even if you just want to say hello, you fill in the card and let us know you've been here. Uh, And tell us how you'd like to support Two Ways Ministries on into the future. And the way to fill in the card actually is to start at the bottom. So you start with your name and address, with the details... And then you work your way up. You might want to say, yes, please tell me, give me information about those those Friday forums, Thursday and Friday forums, and the trajectory weekends. Um, If that's the um, age and stage, if that's who you are and you want to find out about those, please tick that box. If you'd like to receive email updates about what's continuing to happen, uh, you can tick that next box. And then the section at the top of the form, uh, you can indicate how and how much you'd like to give to support this ministry as it goes forward. And you can see there that you can give either just as a credit card donation, either once off or as a recurring donation, or you can do a bank transfer, or if you still use a cheque, and I'm guessing that the Nowhere people probably don't use cheques, but there's a few nation builders still in the room who use chequebooks. If that's how you want to do it, then there's also a chequebook there as well. Um, I'm going to give you a, a... a minute or two, just to fill that in, um, in the next moment. In fact, if the musicians want to, musicians want to come up because we're going to sing our final song in just a moment, um, and I'm just going to give you a minute to fill that in. And when the when the uh, final song is playing, some boxes will come around and we'll collect these cards uh, where you can indicate your support. I'll just give you a second to fill those in. Friends, uh, if you've uh, if you've uh, Completed that card, then we're going to um, we're going to sing our final song together now. And some boxes will come round, and you can pop the card in. Um, if you did complete the card and you wanted to uh, contribute by bank transfer, uh, those details are still on the uh, the handout that you've received. So if you put the card in, don't despair. You've still got those details to, to do when you get home. Uh, that's if you're an old person like me who uses their computer. If you're a young person, you have already transferred the money on your phone. I know that's the case. Um, but if you need to do that, that's on this. Uh, Friends, it is something we can all contribute to. Not all of us are young anymore. Not all of us are rulers. Uh, But as Philip says, pretty much all of us are rich. And in the resources that God has given us, uh, we should support ministries like this that are doing such wonderful work. Uh, Let's stand together. We're going to sing. Some boxes will come round and you can pop the card in. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Hopefully we'll all gather it again next year at the Queen's Birthday Convention, Uh, what it'll be about, who knows what. But if it's as good as tonight, it'll be well worth coming. Thanks again for being with, with us tonight. Good night.